Please take out your Bibles this morning, if you would, and turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. However, I'm not going to begin there immediately. I just wondered, have you noticed how much lately we have been focusing on the writings and the character of the Apostle John? And you think, stop and think about it. It's, it's not necessarily by any conscious uh, desire of mine. It's just kind of worked out that way. On Wednesday nights, we've obviously been having our phenomenal Wednesday night summer series. We've heard some terrific lessons on the Gospel of John. That was planned, but then you stop and think about it. We're talking about the book of Revelation in the Sunday morning adult class written by the Apostle John. And not too long ago, we did a sermon series on 316, which, although it went all over the Bible, was obviously taken from John 316 as the initial idea to start. And so we're talking a lot about John. But you know, with all of the different things that God led John to write, it is sometimes very easy to lose sight of who John the person actually was. And yet it was who John was as a person that allowed the Lord Jesus Christ to use him the way he did to impart the wisdom that he did. Because you see, the Lord uses common, ordinary, weak, everyday people to accomplish the most incredible and extraordinary victories for his cause the world has ever known. God has always used normal folks, as it were. And the thing, as we're going to see with the Apostle John, the thing that sets these normal folks with all of their weaknesses and all of their shortcomings and all of their humanity, what sets them apart from the rest of humanity is not some sort of special immunity that they have from either physical infirmities or spiritual calamities or anything of the sort. What sets these common folks that do extraordinary things apart is their complete, undying, and unyielding commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ no matter what they face in life. And that means they're having the subsequent humility and willingness to allow God to grow them and groom them and mature them through their countless struggles and shortcomings into the image of his son on a daily basis. They take those things that life slams them with, or just the natural course of growing up, as it were, and maturing over time, they allow those things that come into their lives that are difficult to be stepping stones for God to train them up, to make mature Christians out of them, rather than letting those difficult things cause them to remain in their immaturity. Let's take a look at the life of the man, John, who later became the one we refer to as the Apostle John, whose writings we've been studying a lot lately, and you'll see what I mean. John was, and for those of you that are taking notes, I've got a lot of just quick mentioned references this morning. John was the son of Zebedee, 
a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. Mark chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. John's mother was a woman named Salome. And we see that when we look in Matthew 27, verse 56, and Mark 15, and verse 40. Now, we don't know much about his father's religious perspective. But his mother, Salome, was one of those women who we see following Jesus all the way up to the crucifixion as we read through the four accounts of the gospel. The fact that it was his mother and not his father that went to Jesus. You'll recall the story. The two boys wanted the place of prominence at the table there or in the kingdom when it came. And it was their mother, not their father. They went to Jesus and requested that special place. That might furnish us with a little more support that perhaps like Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.5, as well as so many others today, it is the mom, or at least one parent and not both, who are trying to guide the child in spiritual matters. We would also notice when we talk about John, that John was most likely the younger brother of James. We know James and John were brothers. More than likely, James was the older and John was the younger. And one of the reasons that we base that on, besides what most commentators will tell you, at least the ones that I have read, is the fact that there's 18 different verses wherein James and John appear together. 18 different verses. And in every one of those except one, James appears first. To the Jews, it was a big deal to list the oldest son and then come down through the genealogy or the lineage. So when we see them, we always see, except for that one time, we see James listed first. And so you can think about the humanity of John. Just think about that for a minute. It's going to come into play here momentarily. John was the kid brother of James. James was the older brother. The one he looked up to. They did a lot of things together. Apparently, as we shall see. Let's keep that in mind. They came, John came from an affluent family, a family that, that had a little money, had a business. We know that from Mark 1 and verse 20, where in their fishing business they had hired servants, what we might call employees today, who helped with the fishing business. We would also note that they were business partners, that is, James and John and, and Zebedee. The family was fishing partners, business partners, partners with Peter, Luke 5 and verse 10. As we move on and we consider John in his younger years, we conclude from Matthew 27, 56 and Luke 8, 1 through 3, that John's mother, Salome, was one of those women in that group of women that followed Jesus and his disciples around and provided for them out of her means. So again, we see that John was from a fairly affluent family. John, when he walked away from his family to follow Jesus, he didn't walk away from a pauper's existence. He walked away from family that had some money. They had a, they had a good business. Again, his mom, one of those women who helped supply Jesus' needs and the needs of the disciples. Another contributing fact that would show that the family had, you know, good standing in the community. 
John was known by Caiaphas, the high priest, John 18 and verse 15. And being known by the high priest implies a family of means and a family of influence, a family of high social standing. And as I thought about that, I thought, well, you know what? As I consider the family that John came from, maybe John had a little more in common with the rich young ruler than you would first think, except, of course, that his response was totally different and the opposite of the rich young ruler's. Because when Jesus came along and said to John, follow me, John dropped everything. And John had a lot to drop, as it were, when we stop and think about it. In fact, open up your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 4, and let's look at that calling briefly. We would note in Matthew chapter 4, if you're not already there, beginning at verse 18, that when Jesus came by their place of work there on the shore and, and called him, John, along with his older brother, or his older brother along with John, immediately joined their business partner Peter and his brother Andrew in following Jesus. Matthew 4 beginning at verse 18 says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. He said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. They immediately, you see that? They immediately left their nets and followed him. Now we know from our study in the four gospel accounts that they had had an experience here, a little bit of experience with Jesus, but when he came along and, you know, it's time to follow me immediately, they did that. Going on from there, verse 21, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, notice James again mentioned first, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. They left the boat, the hired servants, the father, the fishing business, the nets, left it all. Immediately just left and followed Jesus. Now, Mark, telling us about this same event in Mark 1.20, would say, He called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. I mean, they just, they're, they're just out of there. They're gone. Sorry, Dad, got to go. They left it all. And that wasn't something you would typically see in those days. Respect for parents in those days was worlds different than it is in a lot of cases today. Do you remember the excuses that some people during Jesus' ministry that he called them? And remember some of the excuses they gave when Jesus said, follow me, and they refused? In places like, for instance, Luke 9, 57 through 62. It says in Luke 9, 57 through 62, it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. He said to them, foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then Jesus said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow, and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And while those in Luke chapter 9, when Jesus said, follow me, had that response, that's certainly not the response that Andrew and Peter and James and John had, as we've seen right here. There was certainly no such lack of commitment on the part of these four 
including John. Luke would add, in Luke 5.11, they forsook all and followed Jesus. Now from that point on, Peter, James, and John, as has been told in multiple sermons, Peter, James, and John were kind of an inner circle, it seems, in some ways. They, they got to see and experience things the other apostles did not. And that's been well documented in other sermons. This morning, though I want to focus more on the humanity of John, it is extremely important that we remember that these four young men were just common, ordinary, typical young men in many respects. In many respects, as young men tend to be, they could be aggressive, they could be prideful, they could be egotistical, they could be a little more full of themselves maybe than they needed to be at times. Just as most all young men can typically be, I used to be one, a young guy I meant, and Solomon, in his wisdom, said time and chance happens to them all. And you know, you grow up after a while. But John was no exception. In fact, John as a young man was a far cry from the apostle of love that we see in his later epistles. He was a whole different guy early on. In Mark 3 and verse 17, Jesus nicknamed James and John the sons of thunder. For those of you who have been woken up in the middle of the night because the thunder is just rumbling over the house. It's loud and it's there and you can't miss it. Yeah, that was kind of James and John. Jesus said, you guys are sons of thunder. Not only that, but we see the personality of these two reflected in Luke 9. Please turn there to Luke 9. A little bit previous that passage that I just referred to in Luke 9, 57 through 62. Let's look at the Luke 9, 51 through 56, the verses immediately before that. In Luke 9, 51, it says, It came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. The Samaritans didn't want anything to do with him. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them like Elijah did? <laughs> oh, the impetuousness of young men. I mean, really. Lord, do you want us to nuke them right out of their shoes? We can do that because Elijah did it. And Jesus said, no. <laughs> Jesus turned and rebuked them. Now, boys, that ain't the way it's going to work. Bad paraphrase. Let's read what Jesus actually said. He turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. Another way Jesus could have said that is, That's just your youth screaming through. He said, You have no idea what, you're, what, what sort of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. If that village wasn't going to receive Jesus, Jesus had the wisdom and the maturity, even himself as a younger man, Jesus had the wisdom and maturity to say, You know what? That's not what I'm here for. We'll just go somewhere else. But we see their personality there. And of course, we see their ego. And their pride once again on display in Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28, and Mark 10, verses 35 to 45. We know the story there. I'm not even going to turn there, but that is the place where 
Their mother comes to Jesus and she requests that the two boys sit on his, his right and his left there when he comes into his kingdom. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant. You know, James and John, again, John was not somebody who was immune from the humanity of growing up, going through young adulthood, and maturing into a man and a Christian. He wasn't immune from that cycle. God was using normal, everyday people that go through those things, as God always does, because God uses people. But in their youthful immaturity, and that's what it was, they thought that they should just have this prominent position without putting in any of the work or effort required to have them. They thought they were just entitled to them. Hey, we, we deserve those two places. They thought they could just take advantage and get what they wanted without serving or sacrificing anything of their own. And what did Jesus do? Jesus said, no. You want to be great in the kingdom? Let me tell you how to get there. You don't get there by trying to undercut everybody else. That's not how it works. Not in my kingdom. Jesus told them that the greatest amongst them would be their servant. You want to be great in the kingdom? You need to learn to serve. Now, typically, young men who are, you know, young men, last thing they want to hear about is getting down and getting their hands dirty and doing the dirty work to, to climb to this position that they needed to be at. But here's the beautiful thing about that. Even though Jesus had to set them straight once again, did you notice the one thing Jesus did not do in that text? Did you notice the one thing Jesus did not do, period? The one thing Jesus did not do, praise God, Jesus did not give up on them just because they were slow to grow. And I am so grateful for that. Aren't you glad Psalm 25 and verse 7 is in the Bible where David said, Remember not the sins of my youth. Aren't you glad that God does not remember the sins of our youth? And John needed some of these things forgotten, as it were. But, but God, Christ, never gave up on him. He, he never gave up on John. Never gave up on James. Never gave up on Peter, even though they were slow to grow. We would notice that Jesus kept on patiently trying to work with them, to help them outgrow the immaturity of their youth. You'll recall with me several examples of that. They were with Jesus. Peter, James, and John were the three that were with Jesus on the Mount of Olives in Mark 13 and verse 3 when they looked across and they were commenting about the stones of the temple and Jesus said, you know, these stones will be torn down. That's Peter, James, and John. Jesus still working with them. Never gave up on them. Jesus, in fact, used John from there on out. He sent John along with Peter on a mission to prepare for the final Passover. Luke 22 and verse 8. John and Peter. It was Peter, James, and John who had the place of closest proximity to Jesus as he poured out his soul in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark 14, 32 and 3. It was Peter and John that gained entrance into the courtyard after Jesus was betrayed, John 18, 15, and 16. And John was the only disciple we see at the foot of the cross. And you remember what happened there? Jesus 
entrusted John with the care of his own mother. You remember that? John chapter 19, verses 26 and 7. And I want us to stop right there, because we pass over some of this stuff. And as we talk about John's humanity, I want you to stop and think about that. Here's Jesus, and we often focus on Jesus, as we should. He's pouring out his lifeblood, and he looks down at John, and Mary's there, and, and he entrusts Mary's care to John. Now, <laughs> How do you respond to that if you're John? We know how he responded, and we all say we'd respond the same way, but I'm thinking about inside. Just, just think about John as a human being for a minute. Think about this. Everything that John has completely believed in. Remember, he left his father's business, left the servants, left the boat, just took off, followed Jesus. Three and a half years, he's followed Jesus. Three and a half years, he's been corrected by Jesus on occasion. He's heard Jesus, he knows, and he's expecting this kingdom. Everything that John has believed in for the last three and a half years is dying right there on that cross. Everything. Everything he believed in is bleeding to death right there on that cross. It's over. It looks like. Everything he has been committed to and given up every earthly thing for seemed to be falling apart right in front of him. You sacrifice everything for the Lord and you work for years and you see it all fall apart in a matter of six hours by comparison. What do you do with that? Well, I'll sit here and say, I'd be okay with it. Really? No. Would it shake your faith? It must have shaken John's faith. It would shake mine. Would it make you want to quit? Don't raise your hands, but let's face it. Some of us in this room have had times we just wanted to quit because it just didn't seem to be working with the Lord. I believe that's true. It's all coming apart at the seams. Everything he's been committed to. Romans are going to win. Jesus is going to die. And as if that wasn't enough, notice the irony. Now he has the added responsibility of serving. Remember the table? They didn't want to serve. Jesus said, the greatest among you will be your servant. They just thought they were entitled to it. And now, with everything falling apart, what does Jesus tell him? Serve. I want you to take Mary into your house. Now you've got to be the caregiver for somebody else's mother who's losing her son. Oh, that ought to be fun. Put all that together. What would that do to a person? Here's the beautiful thing. Please notice that that did not diminish John's faith or his service. You see, somebody once said, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you handle it. Sometimes those crosses that we have to bear and those disappointments that we have can crush us if we choose to allow them to. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that even though we are crushed, we are not destroyed. We have to choose to let God use those times when things seem the darkness, darkest as stepping stones to mature us in our faith. That's what John did. It seems it increased his faith. Maybe he's beginning to outgrow his youthful immaturity after all. Do you suppose Jesus knew he would if he gave him time enough? After the crucifixion, we see him and Peter almost inseparable. That's not surprising. Peter, James, and John had done a lot together. 
Peter and John were together after as well. For example, the first apostles to get to the tomb and look inside were Peter and John. John 20 verses 1 through 8. When Peter, a little bit later, decided that he was going to go fishing, John and a few of the others joined him in John 21. As a result, they got to have a breakfast visit with Jesus there on the beach. <laughs> but once again, we see their humanity. Once again, we notice Peter this time during that visit showing his youthful immaturity and insecurity. What does he say? What about him? Looking at John. They're just young men. And, and in their immaturity and insecurity, Peter, well, well, Lord, what about him? And Jesus said, if I want him to remain alive again till I come, if I want him to remain alive till I come again, what's that to you? You follow me. Peter, don't worry about what I'm doing with John. Grow up. This is between you and me. You follow me. Sometimes we need to stop worrying so much about what God's doing with other people and just follow Jesus. God says, you follow me. I'll take care of him. But this is us. We move on. You'll recall it was Peter and John who went up to the temple together to pray in Acts chapter 3 when Peter healed the lame man and that caused Peter and John to be taken into custody and have to stand together before the Sanhedrin in Acts 3 and 4. They saw some terribly tough times together, did Peter and John. John and his older brother James saw some tough times together. They saw the martyrdom of Stephen and the persecution of the church by Saul of Tarsus in Acts 7 and 8. And Peter and James and John stood their ground when the martyrdom was happening, when Saul of Tarsus was going into houses and, and taking people prisoner and ravaging the church. Peter, James, and John stood their ground and they stood together with the rest of the apostles and they stayed in Jerusalem at the risk of their own lives, Acts 8, 1 through 3. But here's the thing I want us to get out of this. All of those trials and tribulations... Because John was a man who was willing to humble himself before God and he was willing to learn from his own mistakes. He was willing to learn and let God teach him and humble himself because he was willing to do that. We see all these trials and tribulations beginning to help grow and mature John into the leader that Jesus needed for him to become. Simply because John, again, was not given to repeating the mistakes of his youth, but growing, humbling himself, repenting, and growing more Christ-like through them. In Acts chapter 8, we see John. Good old John. John who earlier had wanted to call fire down on the Samaritans, as we read about in Luke. That same guy... A little bit later on, we see him in Acts 8 working with Peter. Only now, what's he doing? In verses 14 through 25 of Acts 8, you know what he's doing now? He's going down sharing the Holy Spirit with the Samaritans. And on the way back to Jerusalem, he's sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them in order to save their souls. Is John growing up? Is John getting it? Yes. He's gone from, Lord, you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy him? To... I want to share Jesus with you. To the same group, to the Samaritans. John's growing up in Christ Jesus. 
And we often either forget or read right over the fact or apply it in a different way that it was only shortly after these events that tragedy struck in Acts chapter 12. When we talk about Acts chapter 12 in the first four verses, we often get tangled up in saying James was the first, first one of the apostles martyred, and that's true. Or, as I so often use the text there in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, you know, this was over the time of the Passover, not Easter. And, and we, use, we use all of these different things, but, but we often miss something very, very important here. In Acts 12, 1 through 4, John, a normal human being with normal emotions and a family and siblings, lost his older brother. We miss that. Read right over it. John lost his older brother. His brother whom he had walked with Jesus with. His brother whom he had done so many things with as we read through the, the text of the four gospel accounts. And his older brother, he doesn't just lose him in a, in a chariot accident or something. He loses him because James was faithful. That's why he loses him. James was a Christian. But he loses... And not only does he lose his older brother, all at once... You want to talk about tribulation just crushing in on you? Not only does he lose his older brother, but who's the guy he's been doing everything with in the church? Peter, right? Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5. Peter is with John all the time. Not only does John's older brother get killed by Herod, but then Herod takes Peter prisoner. Well, what's, what are you normally thinking? Well, if he beheaded my brother John, Peter's next. Boom, boom, just like that. What would that do to your faith? What did he do? Well, apparently, he hung on to his faith, and he grew. And he grew in his maturity and in his faith. How did he do that? How do you do that when the world crashes in? How do you grow in your faith? You do that by humbling yourself before the hand of Almighty God and understanding who He is compared to whom you are and compared to your circumstances. Let me ask you a question. He just lost his brother. Looks like he's going to lose Peter. Do you suppose when he writes later on in Revelation about knowing about tribulation, do you suppose he really knows anything about it? Absolutely. We lose sight of John during the ensuing years. According to history in the later biblical record, apparently he outlived all the other apostles, including Peter, Paul, and all the rest of those that he had eaten with and seen the miracles with and listened to Jesus with traveled with. You know what that means? We often say, John outlived all the other apostles. That's true. He did. But let's not lose sight of the fact of what that entails. That means all of his friends died insofar as the apostles. He knew. We have to assume he knew when Paul was beheaded. 
He knew when Peter, as history would tell us, was crucified upside down under Nero's reign. He lost all of these co-workers in the kingdom. And you get to a point in the church where you may say, how much more can I take? John saw it all. You know what he did? He humbled himself before God and he allowed God to use his trials to make him a better, stronger, more mature and faithful Christian. He surrendered to God. Commentators tell us that he finally fled from Jerusalem about the time of the Neronian persecution and the destruction of Jerusalem sometime between 63 and 70. I know it was destroyed in 70, but Nero started persecuting in 63 and not really sure what time, but eventually during that time span, John got out of there and he's believed to have wound up in Ephesus where he worked with the church for another two decades. He didn't walk away from the Lord of the church. He got stronger. There was something that happened during the last decade or so of his life when he was much older as a more mature Christian that he wrote about in 3 John. I want you to just take a quick look at 3 John. This is, this is interesting. You want to talk about a man who humbles himself and grows up and allows the Lord to mold him and make him into a mature Christian even though he wasn't that mature to begin with? In 3 John, verses 9 and 10, John says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. <laughs> Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. Not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren, forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Did you notice in verse 9, John's got a problem with Diotrephes. You know why? Because Diotrephes wants the preeminence. Hello, John, who was it that wanted the preeminence back there with Jesus in the kingdom and wanted the spots on the right and the left of Jesus? Excuse me, John, look in the mirror. Wasn't that you and your brother? But you see, John has gone from being one who wanted the preeminence in his early years, one who had to be taught that the greatest among you will be your servant, and in his immaturity of those early years has now through his trials and tribulation and time and chance and his humbling himself before God now he has grown into that mature Christian who has come to understand truly the greatest among you is he who serves like Gaius and that it's not about being preeminent it's about simply being a servant of God. That's maturity. And that's what happened to John. Speaking about the strength of his Christian commitment, his Christian growth, his Christian maturity, as we know, John himself was finally arrested, persecuted, and imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos just for being a faithful and hard-working word following and refusing to deny Christ Christian Revelation 1 9 he was in the spirit on the Lord's day on the island of Patmos where he was because of the word of the Lord and the testimony of the Lord and as we discussed in one of our Bible classes that was a dreadful 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 awful terrible place to be as was reported Sir William Ramsey wrote that exile on Patmos was preceded by scourging 
and it was marked by perpetual fetters, meaning you were in chains, leg irons, that sort of thing all the time, scanty clothing, insufficient food, sleep on the bare ground, a dark prison, and work under the lash of military overseers. That's what life on Patmos was like. Not enough food, not enough clothes, chains. You don't get there unless they scourge you first and open your back up. You get whipped by military overseers and most of us say, I can't imagine going through that. And remember, John was in his 90s. This isn't some young guy that's, that's 30 years old, looks like an NFL linebacker. John was an old man at this point. But you know what? John allowed all of that to make him a better Christian. John saw a lot, and just as we've seen, he was no superhuman or flawless being. But through it all, from the first day he was called by Christ, all the way up through and all he saw to his death, not only did he remain completely committed, and that's the key. He wasn't immune from trials. He wasn't immune from persecution. He wasn't immune from seeing those that he loved die for the cause. He wasn't immune from any... He was a person like you and me. He bled. He was real. The Apostle John and the Apostle Paul were real people, and if they, if they cut themselves, they bled, and when they stoned them, they bruised. They were real people, and they had real families and, and people that they loved, and they lost them. But through it all, not only did he remain completely committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, but he determined to allow the Lord to help him grow stronger and ever closer to him by the things he went through. And that is what separates a servant like John from so many that when they get into struggles, instead of humbling themselves before God, they turn and run from him. This morning, if you are here and you are struggling and you need the prayers of the church to be more committed, or maybe you're somebody who's never taken that first step and been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, if you have one of those needs this morning, would you please come to the front as we stand and sing?